Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 326, King of Scots. Today we're going to talk about James, while well, he was just plain old James VI, just one more in a chain of Scottish Jameses. The reason being that you can understand just a little bit the James that came to inhabit the English, Welsh and Irish thrones as well. And remember that basic historiography of old, that in James we have a king of great successes in his native land, a player of some talent. So surely, whatever goes wrong in the England years, if anything does go wrong, of course, no plot spoilers here, thank you very much, can't be laid at the door of a James of Weldon's crude caricature that we heard about last time. James was born into a truly extraordinary situation when he became king at a rather lonely ceremony at Schoon, traditional location for the crowning of Scottish kings, when he was but one year old in 1567. Not that being crowned while a minor was anything particularly new for Scotland. Oh dearie me, no. James II was seven when he became king. James III was eight. James IV, from whose wife Margaret Tudor, derived James VI's claim to the throne, by the way, James IV was practically drawing his pension when he came to the throne at 15 years old. But the previous pattern re-established itself with James V, who was one and a bit. There was a sort of pattern to these minorities. To a greater or lesser extent, the result was some factionalism and infighting. I know we have spoken many times of the importance of the monarch as a manager of the medieval great men. This was a role 
even greater than normal in Scotland, where the tradition of government was very much the regional devolution of power to super-powerful regional magnates. One historian has argued that Scotland was all country and no court, which is definitely going too far, but given the strength of the regional magnates, having an umpire was critical. By and large, there was a very strong tradition of the Scottish magnates accepting the arbitration of the king. But it meant that when there was no adult monarch, things could get pretty feisty. What was extraordinary about James's position was that when he came to the throne, there was a person who firmly believed that she was in fact the ruling monarch of Scotland, Mary I, known to us generally as Mary Queen of Scots, who had been deposed by her magnates and imprisoned in England, a story we have of course been through quite a bit. That must have given James pause for thought about the relationship between a king and his subjects on which more later. He was to be given further thoughts about such a relationship by a scholar of European renown who was one of his tutors, one George Buchanan. He had another tutor, a good Calvinist theologian called Peter Young, with whom he seems to have got on very well, unlike George. The two tutors managed to inculcate a love of classical learning in their young charge. In addition to his knowledge of biblical and classical texts, he was taught history, political theory, theology, languages, geography, mathematics. Languages figured highly. Latin first, so that James would proudly declare that he was taught to speak Latin before he could speak Scots. But he also grew up to speak fluent Greek, French and English. I don't believe he spoke Gallic. James, however, had a very unhappy relationship with George Buchanan on account of a couple of major issues. Number one was that George was very keen on child-centred learning, in the sense that he felt strongly that children who failed to learn should swiftly feel the application of the clip around the ear, or worse actually, the rod. Not for James, the existence of a whipping boy. The experience seems to have given James nightmares and he never forgot the brutality throughout his life. The second reason was that George fiercely and shamelessly denounced James's mother as a tyrant, murderer and witch. That can't have been a positive experience for the young lad and I doubt it appears as an approach in the social workers' training programmes these days. Now, I mentioned the relationship between monarch and subject, and George espoused resistance theory. The idea that people were fully entitled to rebel against the tyrant, one who broke the social contract of monarchy, especially if the monarch happened to choose the wrong religion, as had his mother, of course, in George's view. This philosophy was strongly reinforced by Scotland's religious establishment, now, Scotland's Reformation seems very much more decisive and straightforward than England's. None of this hokey-cokey approach, one religion in, one religion out, in, out, shake it all about. No, the Scots had a Reformation Parliament in 1560. Everyone decided they were Calvinists. Now, wham, bam, thank you, Sam. Not only that, but the Church of Scotland established a structure around the Church according to the Genevan advice to bring about the godly society. This consisted of court sessions, local courts, 
built around each parish's elders and ministers that made sure uniformity was strictly enforced and morality too. At the top of the kirk was the General Assembly to which all ministers of every one of the 9,000 parishes were entitled to come. The word to use about the Scottish framework was Presbyterian, from presbyter or elder, and it is a term of which your ears will be filled. The structure of the church was thus very flat and egalitarian. Ministers were all of equal rank, although there were 13 regional presbyters too. Now I can see your expression, and you will notice, of course, that I have not yet mentioned bishops, or a supreme governor of the church, or indeed the king. And if you were one of the more radically minded ministers of the new kirk, like a man called Andrew Melville, that was for good reason. For as Melville was to thunder at his king at lovely Falkland Palace, the king had no special place in a proper kirk at all, nor like that eaten mess of a confection south of the border. There is two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. There is Christ Jesus the king and his kingdom the kirk, whose subject King James VI is, and of whose kingdom not a king, not a lord, nor a head, but a member. Now is a time for a bit of qualification of this. It's by no means quite as neat as it first appears. Catholicism did survive to an extent, particularly among some of the nobility and in the northeast, so the Earls of Huntley, for example. And the reach of the new Kirk in the Highlands and Western Isles was much, much more patchy than it was in the Lowlands. It's not necessarily that those areas remained defiantly wedded to the old religion, just that there's a lack of ministers there, a lack of push from many of the regional magnates, though the Campbells were an exception, being strongly Protestant and ensuring that their lands, including Argyll, were fully converted. Despite these problems, by the way, education was a major focus and success of the Scottish Kirk, aiming to establish a school in every parish and making some progress towards it. And of course, there were five universities to train their ministers. In political and personal terms, James was looked after at Stirling for much of his early life by the Earl of Mar, and the next Earl of Mar was a personal friend to James and would be one of those who advised his son Charles on his accession to the throne in 1625. It's not totally clear when James threw off the shackles of his minority and placed his hand unequivocally on the tiller of state, but said hand was probably in place by 1587, but before that, James was already beginning to throw his weight around. So the super summary is that James did not buy the education handed out to him by George Buchanan and Andrew Melville, and indeed he reacted very firmly against it in the opposite direction. A good old traditional teenage rebellion, in fact, testing the boundaries, staying up late, drinking too late, and dropping ease, that sort of thing. As far as he was concerned, no way did his subjects have any right to depose their king. And while we're on it, the king was absolutely the head of the church. The story of his reign was his long rearguard action against the attempts of the more radical clerics to get secular power out of the church. He was helped that the real heart of the Reformation was in Lothian, Fife, Angus and maybe the Borders, and that although Melville and his radical clerics were very powerful and activist, away in their parishes 
Many ministers were much more traditional. So, it took until 1580 for the Kirk to actually agree that bishops were unscriptural. And then in 1584, James struck back with a so-called black axe at the Parliament of that year to establish that bishops were indeed a part of the Kirk. Now, why was this important, I hear you ask? Well, because bishops were royal hierarchy. They reported to the king. They were his eyes and ears in managing their diocese. They could sit in secular councils and support the king there. So, the Black Acts declared that James had power over all estates, temporal and spiritual. Note the and spiritual and watch Melville and Buchanan coming out in spots, calling for matron and reaching for the smelling salts. He also made sure that the General Assembly of the Kirk could only meet when called by the King, just like a Parliament. And of course, his bishops would be there to make sure the royal agenda held sway. That was by no means the end of the affair, though. The radical wing of the Kirk would fight back, and early in the reign, although bishops were still part of the formal structure from the Black Axe, none were actually in place. But then slowly, through the first ten years of the 17th century, James forced bishops back onto their sees, running their provinces. OK, so why am I telling all of this? I hear you eye-roll. Is this the history of England, or what? Well, I need you to take a couple of things away with you. First of all, James was a self-confident ruler who took on very formidable opponents from a comparatively young age, and who had a very clear sense of what he was aiming for. Whatever his odd personal habits, he was no pushover. Secondly, James was used to a Presbyterian system and shared a sense of pride at Scotland's achievement in the strength of its reformation and its depth. The Scots felt very strongly that theirs was a leading example of the reformed church in Christendom. But thirdly, the strength of that reformation and its Presbyterian nature presented a challenge to James. As the struggles between him and the Kirk leadership wore on back and forth, it began to be a little unclear as to where the real heart of Scotland lay. What I mean by that is that the Kirk and the Kirk session was very effective at a parish level of becoming the fundamental factor in the lives of ordinary Scots. Its quality was part of Scottish pride in their kingdom. Now, the monarch had always worn that particular badge. The monarch had been what really symbolised Scotland and brought it together and held it together across the very disparate Northern Isles, Western Isles and Highlands and the Lowlands. Slowly, for some, that was not quite the case anymore. And if they were to look for the defender of Scotland, of its heritage and traditions, of its core and its heart, well, it might just be the Kirk to which they turned rather than the King. Just as James was determined to assert his control over the National Church, so he was determined to do the same over his nobility and would have no more truck with his nobility controlling his actions than he would the Kirk trying to do so. And it has to be said that had James decided to become a bloodletting despot in the guise of an Ivan the Terrible, he would have had some justification for swinging his rucksack onto his back, taking his walking stick of oppression in hand and setting off down the road to the black gates of Mordor. After all, there was the small matter of his mum being deposed, 
At the age of five also, he'd watched his protector, the Earl of Lennox, bleed to death in Stirling Castle as a result of factional infighting. And the young prince remained blown around by the winds of factionalism as late as 1582 and the reasonably terrifying series of events known as the Ruthven Raid. So this requires a bit of explanation, I think. So, if you are all sitting comfortably, then I shall begin. The young James developed early a facet of his personality that would remain strongly in evidence throughout his life, which we mentioned last time, actually, namely his very strong attachment to a series of men that would acquire the convenient tag of royal favourite. People have speculated that the tendency came from James's emotionally lonely upbringing, shorn of his mother and her love, deprived of informal family relationships, and giving him a lifelong search for emotional satisfaction. But then, you know how people will talk. But what is not speculation is that he did indeed favour a series of male companions, and the first of this ilk was a young Frenchman, oddly enough, the Seigneur d'Aubigny, one Esme Stuart. Esme was vaguely related to the Scottish royal house and was cordially invited to visit by James, and so he did. He kissed his family goodbye and tipped up at the French court, where he very quickly became the king's dearest friend, confidant and indeed supporter, and there's no doubt a real affection on both sides. Yet Esme's rise to the dukedom of Lennox generated unsurprisingly conflicted feelings in the breasts of other Scottish courtiers, and this was coupled with fear of Esme's religion, originally Catholic, though he converted to Protestantism. The result was that the person of the king, still in his minority, was half-inched by Lords Gowrie and Athol in dramatic fashion and incarcerated in Ruthven Castle, and Esme Stuart was forced to leave the realm at which point James wrote him a poem called The Phoenix, as you do when times are tough, or Matters of Love, or The Tigers Get Walloped by the Saints at Welford Road. It was not long before James reasserted himself and gained his revenge, and by 1587 he had attained full control of the reigns of state. But there can be little doubt that these events and the challenge to his authority affected his thinking rather than caving in and becoming a pawn in the power brokers of church and state, James systematically placed the crown once more where it had always sat in the Scottish polity at the centre. The arbiter of faction that maintained the balance between the various regional powers and magnates. This does not mean, therefore, that James started some war against his nobility. Far from it. He absolutely believed that their role was central to the success of the kingdom, and he was determined to preserve their status and authority. He wrote that he would draw his nobility to unity and concord as a universal king impartial to them all. He had a deep faith in the role and inherent value of aristocracy, writing that virtue followeth oftest noble blood. So, you know, Let's banish that trendy idea that nobility is defined by behaviour. Nah! We're still in the time when such an attitude would earn you nubbut, a snigger and a clip round the ear despite what the lovely Heath Ledger says in A Knight's Tale. Here from James is a restatement of that traditional central tenet of successful Scottish governance. The king let the magnates reign in the regions as long as they were loyal and obedient to his will. 
and he sat above factionalism. However, he did indeed demand their obedience and he had a talent for managing the relationships with them. At court, observers remarked on his informality and the strength of his relationship with his great men, but he also had a skill for employing talented administrators from the Lairdly class in Scotland. Minor nobility, you might say, in particular men like John Maitland of Thurlston. James managed his parliament expertly, controlling and setting the agenda of each, bending the body politic to his will. By the time James became King of England, he was therefore a successful, self-confident ruler with a clear sense of mission. He'd put the chaos of his mother's reign behind him. He'd established control over both court and kirk. James ruled a kingdom of multiple traditions, from the Norse Northern Isles to the Gallic Western Isles and Highlands to the Scots Lowlands and Borders. He, like many other states of Europe, was keen to bring together these different entities into one unified kingdom. In Scotland, James shared the lowland concept that the Gallic Highlanders and Western Islanders needed desperately to be civilised. In Basilican Doran, his book on kingship, he wrote that there were two types of Highlander. Those that dwelleth in our mainland, that are barbarous for the most part, and yet mixed with some show of civility. The other that dwelleth in the isles are utterly barbarous, without any show of civility. The Scottish Parliament appeared to agree and proclaimed that the Gallic language should be abolished and removed from Scotland because it was one of the chief and principal causes of the continuance of barbarity and incivility amongst the inhabitants of the Isles and Highlands. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There is a parallel then between English and Lowland Scots' attitude towards Gaeldom. As indeed, there was also in identifying solutions. Sir James was also a believer in planting communities of the so-called civilised lowlanders to bring lowland civilization to the islands. So, in the 1590s, he focused on the island of Lewis. He proclaimed that the MacLeod had forfeited their rights there, and he formed a society, the Gentlemen Adventurers of Fife. 500 to 600 fifers set out for Lewis, to set up a community in Stornoway that would civilise the people around them. James was unconcerned about local feeling about this. The adventurers were to proceed, not by agreement with the Lewis people, but by extirpation of them. Which is, again, you know, rude. This thinking then would inform James's policy towards Ireland, as we shall see in the fullness of time. The policy of trying to standardise Scottish culture continued after James moved to England, the Statute of Iona in 1609 ordered that any man of means were to send their eldest sons to be educated in English at lowland schools, 
The right to carry arms was restricted, fugitives and beggars not to be protected, and Gallic bards and other bearers of the traditional culture were to be controlled. The statute was followed up by a proclamation from the Scottish Privy Council in 1616. In 1589, James was betrothed in absentia to Anne of Denmark, the 15-year-old daughter of King Frederick II of Denmark. Now this was a big deal for James and for Scotland. A royal bride of Anne's status was a real diplomatic coup. Plus, James was fully prepared to be as romantically swashbuckling as possibly could be, writing poems of delight and declarations of love for his bride-to-be. And by George, he was to have his chance, because Anne's fleet hit very bad weather. All news from them was lost, and the worst was feared. Even worse, it seems she might have ended up landing in Leith. Just a joke, Leithians. Had she landed there, then no doubt she would have been bathed in sunshine. Anyway, everyone was laying eggs. Then it was discovered that she'd been blown instead to Oslo. So... With wavy locks flowing, our young hero took ship with 300 companions off to Oslo to rescue his paramour. There is something of a dispute as to what happens next. The Norwegians described a grand, formal entrance with heralds. The Scottish Count relates a love story without utensils of the young king turning up unannounced and over her protests he kissed her, and I quote, in the Scottish fashion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to forgive me, but since first writing of James's romance for the members' history of Scotland, I have mused long into the night, long into the night, about what kissing in the Scottish fashion might be. I mean, when we were nippers, we were vaguely aware of French kissing, but no more. Enlightenment has since not arrived, so any answers? Break out the postcards once more. Anne of Denmark brought lustre and culture to the Scottish court, and by and large, She and James defended each other's good name and interests while in Scotland, though it must be said that Anne was not above playing her cards for her own ends. She neither was a pushover, including some intriguing against James's chief minister, John Maitland. When Anne set up her household at Dunfermline, her court became a cultural centre that allowed her to experiment with new architecture and to patronise musicians, players and poets. This would also be important when she got to England. The pair were not without their disagreements, and James was rumoured, well, you know, more than rumoured, to have had mistresses for three years between 1593 and 6. And of course, since Anne didn't immediately give birth, although she may in fact have had a miscarriage, there was the entirely predictable pressure. And some libels appeared in print, archly mentioning James's fondness for male company, nudge, nudge, and if you will, wink, and possibly even wink. But Anne gave birth through her life to seven children, although four of them died painfully young. One other thing, though, drove the couple apart. Their firstborn was Prince Henry, born in 1594, and he quickly became showered with praise and the hopes of a nation, was seen as the bright and promising future for the Scottish monarchy. Everyone was over the moon, and luxuriated in praise and relief, probably, as she cradled her tiny son. But then, a hammer blow. James dictated that little Henry should not be kept and looked after by his mother, but instead by Annabel Murray and John Erskine, the Earl of Mar at Stirling. 
Anne was furious, and her fury turned to bitterness when James refused to back down. Now why? Why would James do such a thing to his wife? A couple of theories have been advanced. Firstly, maybe it was James's paranoia about security. After all, it had been the Earl and Countess of Mar who'd kept him safe through many of the vicissitudes of his minority. Or maybe it was that old chestnut religion. Anne, though nominally a Lutheran, had started flirting with Catholicism and would indeed convert in the fullness. And maybe James saw trouble ahead if James was not brought up in the national religion. But as you can imagine, it soured Anne and James's relationship and some, although not to the extent of a full estrangement. It was for little Prince Henry that James wrote the Basilican Doran and also the True Laws of Free Monarchies in 1598-9. By this stage, James was secure on his throne, an experienced and successful and capable monarch, lord of all he surveyed, in his pomp. These books were his mature reflections on the nature of kingship. They were also quite possibly his revenge on the shades of George Buchanan and on Andrew Melville with their outrageous theories of a contractual monarchy and the right of people to resistance. And we should note, these ideas of resistance were not restricted to Scotland, by the way. In England, in 1550s, John Ponnet in Marian Exile had written in the same vein as had Theodore Beza at Geneva. And indeed, the Jesuits had also argued the same, should a kingdom be unlucky enough to be ruled by a heretic. The Basilican Doran, or royal gift, was firstly a very private letter to his son, Henry. But in 1603, when he arrived in England, a new edition was made public, so that people could see with what they would be dealing. Now, there is something of a tussle here amongst historians, of which I think you should all be made aware. When we get to the civil wars and all of that, We'll have a hoot about historiography in what is the second most interesting period of English history. But very, very broadly speaking, there are big enders and little enders. Those that think the causes of the conflict stretch back to unfinished business in Elizabeth and James's reign, and those that think it's all because of a series of political crises that came about, which even Solomon would have struggled with, and Charles was no Solomon. Anyway, one of the strands is about absolutism. Oh, look, people say, here's this Stuart, James, and his son. They come onto the thrones of the kingdoms and they start chucking their weight about with all this absolutism stuff, the supreme right of kings. Whereas other voices, among whom I include the excellent Tim Harris and Jer Jenny Wormold, they say it's all wildly exaggerated, this absolutism stuff. Look, James was essentially claiming nothing new. Now, in my humble opinion, and it is humble compared to those luminaries, the problem is that it depends on how you read the tea leaves and, in a sense, what you want said leaves to tell you. So, first of all, what exactly did Jimmy write? Well, in essence, he did indeed make it quite clear that the king was accountable to none but God only. If he rules badly, the king was responsible not to his people, who knew, knew. He would receive his judgment at God's hand alone, and no one would be selling tickets for the show either. The king was absolute, that is to say, his power was full and complete. And while we're at it, James was firm about the superiority of king over parliament. 
He argued that kings came before parliaments and therefore they were the original lawmakers, not parliament. And so it follows of necessity that the kings were the authors and makers of the laws and not the laws makers of kings. Well, okay, that does sound pretty absolutist. But Tim Harris makes the point that these things were widely accepted. The likes of the 15th century jurist John Fortescue, who talked of power deriving from the people, were actually relatively obscure. And many would simply have agreed that the job of the subject was to obey, and that without that, there would be death and chaos. And so we come back to the later writings of Hobbes, the Leviathan who has absolute power, without which life could be Continual fear of violent death and the life of man solitary, poor, nasty, brutish and short. Jenny Wormold also makes the point that James in no way intended to be a tyrant, far from it. The Basilican Doran is full of witty, humorous advice on how to rule well. A king should accept that there are ways in which he is expected to exercise his power, consultation that he must make, that he must rule for the betterment of his people, and that although his nobility must be controlled and not become overmighty, yet they must be part of a partnership. The point is, though, for the other side of the argument, that such limits as he accepted were limits that the king graciously granted to his people, whereas in fact the constitutional history of England had established that there were practical limits on royal power. And indeed, even during the frankly very mighty Tudors, the theory had been embedded that royal power was greatest when exercised as the king in Parliament, a concept which still deeply buried underlies the British Constitution. And also, it had to be said that the likes of Edwin Cook would have nothing to do with this the king is above the law stuff. They read the same leaves of history very differently. Either way, I think the takeaways are that James had a very exalted view of royal power and that in exercising that power, he had the weight of a successful reign behind him when he came south. But that he was to find in England a quite different point of view, at least among some of his MPs, which would remove the royal nose from its most comfortable joints. OK, I think that's quite enough about Jimmy as King of Scotland now. Let's see if we can't get the lad over the border. Now, James had been aware of the English throne job for some time. It had been no secret, of course, that he was probably next in line, although Elizabeth had resolutely refused to make herself a lamed-up queen by announcing him as her successor. The relationship with the English court had been tricky and been through some rocky times. After all, the English had, you know, publicly executed his mum, which tends to get in the way of a positive relationship. James had negotiated the Scylla of war with the English and the Charybdis of his subjects' fury with some skill and statesmanship, appearing suitably outraged without actually picking up the musket. And although he seemed the obvious choice to succeed, there were other factors. So under English law, a foreigner, including a potential king, was not able to own land. Henry VIII's will had debarred the line of Margaret Tudor to which James belonged. So James was understandably a little touchy on the subject. He was jumpy. He was on edge. Because let's be clear, he wanted the job. 
1596, he heard rumours that there'd been people bad-mouthing his mum in the English Parliament, and he harangued the Scottish Parliament about Queen Elizabeth's false and malicious and envious dealings. And he got his ambassadors to try and drum up support for his claims to the throne. Elizabeth sent him a letter written in the strongest possible terms, and Robert Cecil intimated that his standing at the English court had been damaged. Such as the, we're not angry, just disappointed language of international diplomacy. James tried to build up a party of supporters in the English court, and he selected the Earl of Essex as his ally in so doing. And at the same time, actually went as far as trying to persuade the conventions of the Scottish estates and boroughs and tried to raise taxation to prepare for an invasion to assert his rights by law if necessary. I mean, the lad was serious about this, and he was livid when the estates told him that invading England would be nutty, and they refused to support him. Now, it has to be said that any English party at Elizabeth's court faced something of a practical problem in talking to James, because having conversations about how to succeed to the English throne constituted, of course, what's the word? Oh yes, treason. And treason, as listeners to this podcast will surely know by now, led to a messy sort of death. So, Essex had been taking something of a risk, but as you know, Essex was a bit of a one for taking risks, a habit which eventually rather blew up in his face. Essex's execution left James without his private communication channel to the English court. Enter Robert Cecil's stage left. Cecil was something of a chip off the old block and was aware that others were writing to James, including Lord Henry Howard, a man of Catholic leanings who'd supported Mary. Henry Howard had been in receipt of a chequered career, it must be said, almost from birth in 1540. He was constantly suspected of being a Catholic and was imprisoned and released no fewer than five times during Elizabeth's reign. And then he was banged up in Nicholas Bacon's house. Howard was a man besotted with the mystique of nobility, not a man in favour of social mobility. In fact, social mobility was a four-letter word, but then you know how idiosyncratic Tudor spelling can be. And then, hauled in and out of prison constantly, out of favour, he was dependent on handouts from his numerous Howard relatives, which must have been humiliating. However, his star began to rise when he attached himself to the Earl of Essex and then cleverly detached himself before Essex's fall and attached himself to the Robert Cecil faction. Cecil's interest, meanwhile, ever the statesman, was to achieve a smooth transition here to the throne when Elizabeth finally shuffled off her mortal coil because people were worried. Some Londoners were filling their houses with military kit in preparation for violence and confusion that would surely follow the Queen's death. Cecil's aim was just to take the heat out of the situation as far as possible, to reassure James as far as he was able so that he'd stop his sabre-rattling, reassure him so that he felt comfortable he would not be denied his due. In this, Henry Howard was a useful intermediary. Howard had been secretly and possibly dangerously in contact with this foreign ruler, and he'd built up a bit of a relationship, though he must be said, sometimes boring the bejesus out of his future king with a correspondence which James described as of ample Asiatic and endless volume. All of this, though potentially dangerous, 
would in the end work heavily in Howard's favour come 1603. It might also be that Henry Howard drew into this chain of correspondence his uncle, Thomas Howard, a man who had been much more popular with Elizabeth and a seafaring man in the Spanish walls. Certainly, Thomas Howard would also do well under James. But for now, it was Robert Cecil who made the most of this channel to the Scottish king, and he told James that his position as an alien would not get in the way of his inheritance. He persuaded Elizabeth to increase James's English pension to £5,000 a year, and James appreciated his efforts and responded with admiration for his newfound ally. In March 1603, as Elizabeth's health declined, Cecil drafted a proclamation and sent it for James's approval. When the Queen looked beyond repair in the early hours of the 24th of March 1603, Cecil sent a messenger north at breakneck speed, Robert Carey, who arrived three days later at Holyrood House. And by the time he had arrived, James had already been proclaimed King at Whitehall in London and the announcements were received calmly and without objection which was something of a win, given the Tudor's history. James received, of course, numerous other letters from anxious English courtiers as the sharpest of elbows started sticking into other people's ribs, including one from Francis Bacon, a man desperate for high legal office. Now the cornerstone is laid of the mightiest monarchy in Europe, he proclaimed in best brown-nosing fashion, Exaggeration, no doubt, but James was most well aware and thoroughly enthusiastic about the fact that he would be acquiring a total of three kingdoms and a principality. On the 5th of April, James left Edinburgh for his new kingdom, promising faithfully to his Scottish Privy Council that he would return at least once every three years, a promise he no doubt sincerely believed at the time and which would have been a good idea, but which was to turn out to be a porky We shall join him on the journey south next time. Meanwhile, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you will join me next time. Good luck and have a great week. On a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns.